Hey guys, welcome to the Tech People Podcast. My name is Ken Coyne. I'm your host and founder, as well as head of technology at Ops Talent. I believe at the heart of any success story are the people who made it happen. Diversity, creativity, and innovation, when nurtured in people, can lead to an unbeatable formula. I created this podcast to share the experiences of some truly inspirational leaders on their journey to success. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, and welcome back. This week, I'm delighted to speak to Trevor Newberry, founder of Newberry Consulting. He helps first-time and non-technical founders turn big ideas into amazing software products. So I thought it would be great to focus on product development. We're going to learn from Trevor about what to do if you've got a new product idea, what are the steps he recommends, what are some of the common pitfalls to avoid, and how do you know you're on the right path with your new product? So welcome to the show, Trevor. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Listen, can you just tell us, our audience, a bit about you and your background, please, Trevor? Absolutely. Yeah. So I am a solopreneur, a consultant here in Birmingham, Alabama. My company, Newberry Consulting Services, works with, as you already described, first time in non-technical founders. We find that those are the folks that really need a lot of help with understanding the particular uh, tactics and techniques that are specific to building software products. So I work specifically with those kinds of founders. I also have a side project that we are getting really close to launching called AppThink. And that is going to be a an educational resource for the same target group. What we found is that working with some of these folks, they need to be able to get in and get out pretty quickly. They need to just get the information, get the tactics, and get a little bit of support on the back end. So we're building a new a new tool to help those folks out with the uh, the process of early stage startups. So yeah, but I mean, I live here in Birmingham with my wife and two dogs, and we're just you know happy and and thankful, especially in the middle of a of the of a global pandemic, to be working and uh, doing stuff that we love to do. So yeah, I know crazy time. So yes, thank you for coming on board today. I'm delighted to have you, and really looking forward to you sharing some of your knowledge and expertise with us. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. We can go straight into it. So, you know, I mean, so for example, if I have a new product idea, which I think, you know, this could be good, I want to go and develop it, or if I need to do more markets research, what are the steps you recommend uh, go with? So I'm going to give you at a high level here, and we can drill down as, as you as you want to, but there's three main steps to building a software product for someone that's never done it. Well, for anybody, but especially for someone that's never done it before, it's one of those where you need to practice and practice and practice. So the first thing is we need to identify what we call a problem worth solving. Not just a problem, but a problem worth solving. We define that as something that a target customer will pay and will pay enough money that you can sustain a business on it. And that process is surprisingly analog, right? At the beginning, it usually is a process of putting pen to paper, conducting problem interviews, and starting to suss out you know, a range. We try to keep it to three to five range of ideas of specific problems that we can try to tackle. Right? And so once we have settled on a problem that we think is worth solving, we validated that people really feel this pain and care a lot about it, we then move into the second bucket, which is prototyping. And we defined, I say we, I'm actually referring to my co-founder with AppThinks. We've been living in that world for so long. But what we define a prototype as is something that is essentially a throwaway. 
you know, there's a little confusion around the difference between prototype and MVP. And I think that's a, there's a bit of a term of art quality to it. We define a prototype as something that doesn't actually deliver value, but it tests something like a solution or it tests something like a, a customer's ability to navigate a potential product. Uh, it doesn't actually do the work. It just, it lets them interact with something that's sort of a, uh, a fake uh, version of your product. It gives you a good idea of, okay, I'm on the right track here. This person will, will engage with the solution. And I think what we've done here indicates that they can navigate the actual technical aspects of the product. And then we move into the MVP. You know, each stage of this process is, is a process of validation, right? You don't, there's sort of a gating threshold. You don't move from one to the next to the next just automatically. If you haven't validated at each and every one of these steps, you don't move to the next ones. But the final one is the MVP. And that has several substages as well within it. But the MVP is where we actually start to build something that delivers value. But it's a very small something and it's a very, it's a very limited something, right? We need to identify exactly what is the smallest unit of value that we can deliver that we can actually capture some value back as a result of that. So those are the three big buckets. So problem identification, prototyping and building an MVP. And, and you know, we can, dr- we can drill down on any one of those that you want to. Yeah, brilliant, Trevor. So I'm, I'm interested definitely in the whole validation aspect. So yeah. when you say validation, you mean, I mean, you have, you go to your clients, or you go to a prospective audience, that you can call the user, and you go, is that my understanding when you say validation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's different at each one of those stages, right? Mm-hmm. So in the very earliest stage, validation means so you're conducting, let's assume you're conducting problem interviews. Validation means I keep hearing the same discrete problem over and over again, right? This is something that I, I, you know, I actually just spoke with a company that wants to build a product that does a lot, right? It's a very uh, complex idea that they have. And what I've encouraged them to do is say, you need to identify which discrete part of that, you know, we need to get down to a single tangible problem, right? Not just I have, you know, this large problem that just makes me angry every day. It's when I try to do thing X, this specific part of it really bugs me. It really clogs up the the pipes, if you will. Mm-hmm. So in that early stage, that validation is really getting feedback from your, your target audience to, that indicates that, hey, yeah, there's a lot of people that are specifically feeling this pain point. Validation in the prototype step is someone will interact with what I'm proposing to solve that pain point, right? They can interact with it successfully. They can put their hands on something and figure out how to navigate it. And there's a bunch of different ways to do prototyping depending on what you're trying to test. But that's, you know, again, you don't have to be delivering that value. It's a fake, right? It's a throwaway. You know, a common, common example of this is using a tool like Adobe XD to mock up a mobile app. It's not an actual mobile app, but people can put, you know, take a mouse and click on certain parts of the Adobe XD file and see, you can say, Hey, you know, can you, Search for green bicycles and they can click on the search bar and hit a button and green bicycles pops up automatically. What it tells you is that they know how to find that part of the app, right? We can drill down into specific functions or keep it at a very high level. And then validation for the MVP, you know, once we get to the, the prototype stage, what, what we're looking for in validation is just successful use of whatever the prototyping tool is, right? And when we get to the MVP, the validation really is are people paying for it, right? We want to get people to trade something of value. In most cases, that's cash. It can be other things, but most of the times that, that's cash. And so, again, not to get too long-winded here, but the validation really looks different at each and every stage. Yeah, no, probably not a lot of sense. A couple more questions there. So, 
on that point on the chart stage or the validation about the money point. So do you recommend you go for a pricing model pretty much immediately? You know, or, or do you go the option to get more people using the platform than look at it later? Or does it depend on what you're after? Depends on what you're after. Honestly, it, in most cases, I would say the vast majority of cases, I recommend trying to capture some monetary value. And it doesn't have to be a lot. It doesn't have to be what you end up wanting to, you know, a fully fleshed out, polished version of your product. But cash is a really, really great indicator of how much somebody values. Somebody values a product. So if you are just looking at for downloads as, as your validation metric, well, how many of us download apps because they look interesting and then either don't touch them or we delete them from our phone, right? How many of us enter email addresses into newsletter slots or something to that effect to get a, a PDF download, right? Well, sure, that's a validation metric, but most of the time we unsubscribe from those newsletters, right? So cash is fixed. Cash is a fixed data point that we can say, okay, yes, this somebody was willing to give me 99 cents, right? For access to this app, for access to this set of features. I think it's a really powerful validation metric that most people should at the very least look at, but it does depend on your specific goals for that product and for your business. Okay, very interesting. Have you come across challenges where it can be difficult to get people to give you time in terms of giving you that validation feedback? You know, at the very, for example, stage one, is this a good idea? Would you pay for mm-hmm. it? I mean, is it difficult to get people to do these interview sessions in your experience? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it, it can be very difficult. And that's why we set the bar fairly low early on. We tell people, Generally speaking, if you can get five problem interviews conducted, you have enough data to start working, right? And again, these are very early stage products. You know, I, I'm sure that when Facebook launches a new feature, they have you know hundreds, if not thousands, of people that are contributing to the validation steps. But that's not who we work with. We're looking at people that have a big idea and they want to get a foothold in the market with their big idea. So typically, I tell people, you know, five problem interviews. You know, highly qualified problem interviews is a really, really good place to start. Now, of course, more data is is better up to a point, but yeah, it can be really difficult. People are stingy with their time, as you know, and and that's something that we we try to take some of the pressure off uh, in that regard. So, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, very good. And uh, one question I was asked recently on the states was the fear, you know, of doing this validation, the fear that someone will take your idea or rob your idea, so you Mm. go in. Oh, it's uh it's something I hear all the time and it's unfortunate that that it's understandable but also unfortunate that that fear exists so prevalently with with early stage founders because frankly that's not even in the top 10 list of things you should be concerned about at the stage. There are very few people that I've run into that have detailed enough concepts that are sensitive enough that they really need to be super concerned about IP at the very earliest stages, IP being intellectual property. The fact of the matter is it's really, really hard to build a product like this, right? So a software product, whether it's living on the web or if if it's, you know, database driven, cloud driven, or if it's a mobile app, it's really expensive. No matter how you slice it, if if you learn to code yourself, it's time and energy. If you hire a developer, you know, a, as a contractor, that's expensive right now. The market is really on the side of the developers, as you probably know. But also, you got to learn how to manage that kind of work. And that's really hard to do as well. 
you bring on a co-founder that's technical, then you're probably giving up 50% of your company. And if you go with a software development shop here in the States, those are six-figure projects in most cases. So you know what I tell people is that it's highly unlikely, even if somebody says, I'm going to steal your idea, which never happens, by the way, but even if somebody says that, it's highly unlikely that they have the commitment to that concept to put that kind of resource behind it. So it's not something that I, I think people should be as concerned about. Now, there are instances I, I have run into companies that have fairly sensitive uh, IP around their idea that I usually send them straight to a lawyer that I work with that works in that space. But those are rare. Those are few and far between. In most cases, you need to focus mostly your biggest risk right now is, is the fact that there's more unknowns than there are knowns. And what you need to be mostly focused on is moving that slider from more unknowns to more knowns. That's where your biggest risk lies. Great job. Well, that moves nicely, actually, to my next point or question. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of common pitfalls here. Could you share some of them and how we can overcome them? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the biggest, the biggest pitfall that I see my clients run into is developing too quickly. And what I mean when I say that, uh, I, I don't know the technical level of your audience. But what I mean when I say that is actually building software too quickly. As I alluded to uh, just momentarily ago, it's very expensive. And, you know, in, in most cases with the people that we work with, resources are constrained. You know, these are sometimes they're solopreneurs, they might have some friends and family backing behind them. But you know, $150,000 is not something that people can just scrape together, you know, in a in a day or a couple of days or even a, several months. So we need to preserve those resources. And to do that, what we want to do is validate these concepts, something we've been talking about so far. But I think what most people that I run into that make this mistake do is they say, I've got a great idea. I want to solve this huge problem. And the first meeting that they take is with a software development shop. That's a big mistake. I can tell you, I have friends and colleagues that work with software development shops, and I love them and the work that they do. But in most cases, at least here in our area, they oftentimes don't have your interest at heart. They're looking for contracts and revenue. And I've seen so many development shops build products that are just not good products. And it's not because the code quality is bad. It's because, frankly, it wasn't validated. It's it's sort of a, a Frankenstein monstrosity of a product by the time it exited, you know, is exiting the the development process. So that's the biggest pitfall. I think the probably the second pitfall that I see, you know, of course that that first pitfall encapsulates all of what we've been talking about. So not going through the validation steps, not going through prototyping, not building a true MVP. The second thing is a lot of folks once they do have a product is that they typically treat marketing as a sort of silver bullet, right? They dump a bunch of money into advertising for their product. And that's getting a little outside of the scope of this conversation, but I mentioned that because a lot of the founders that I work with and that I interact with have actually engaged marketing and advertising before they've actually even built, right? They've started talking to a marketing and advertising firm. And that is just a very expensive proposition as well. And frankly, it won't solve the problem that you have of finding a problem worth solving. Marketing and advertising exists to amplify a product that is is effectively solving a big problem. So it's probably the second biggest pitfall. But I think I would want to stay with that first one of, of developing too fast. Right. Okay. Interesting. That's a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And also, how I mean, you know, I was, I always wanted to get asked is how many features you, you build into the first phase. Mm-hmm. I know you kind of touched on it, but I mean, is there a guideline in terms of how many features? What stage do you put the platform out there to your audience? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's not a hard, for me, anyway, there's not a hard and fast rule. 
I like to look at it this way. You need to, instead of thinking about it in terms of features, you need to think about it in terms of solving problems, right? So if I want to build a meal planning and delivery app, right? Let's just use that as an example. You know, there's a lot that goes into that. There's algorithms that pull in recipes that maybe could build a shopping list that could even integrate with APIs for uh, grocery delivery services, right? To have those things sent to you. There's there's so many different parts of that, right? But which one of those individual things is the big problem? So where I'm kind of heading with that is that if you focus on the problem, the essential number of features that need to support the solution to that problem will shake out of that. But I think your first job is to is to identify that discrete unit of value. So maybe that's just a shopping list app, right? Maybe that's where I know what I want to eat, I know what I want to cook, but getting it into a shopping list, getting it from the book to the, you know, the Apple note or whatever it is, is kind of a pain. And it's a pain to use in the store. So maybe that's the discrete problem that you're trying to solve. Or maybe it's encounter a recipe online and I use Instacart or whatever to have my groceries delivered. You know, maybe that is some sort of way to export that recipe to the grocery delivery service and that's it. Right. There's not a planning feature. There's not, you know, all of these other features. I think the the number of features is going to be dependent on the problem. And so I, I encourage my clients to stay with that problem and then to work from that point outwards to find what is the bare bones necessary amount of features that you need to actually deliver that solution. Excellent, Trevor. And then, okay, so I have my product. I believe, God, this is fantastic. I'm really happy with it. <laughs> How do you really know what you're on the right path? Absolutely. Well, I mean, the, the first and probably the most obvious indicator is, are people adopting it? And and when I say that, what I mean is, are people paying for it? So, you know, I think that, you know, that's such a good question because it's a really complex issue. So I think we need to anchor our expectations or our validation metrics for I'm on the right path against what the business goals are and the specific solution that's being delivered. So in most cases, you know, here's a really good example. I have a client that built an app that does something fairly unique, but it doesn't have a fantastic business case, right? It doesn't have a very... It lacks a business use case. And what we found is that with a little bit of, and really not a, a lot of marketing spend, a, a Facebook advertising spend, people download the app and they never use it. So if you look at it that way, you might look at it and say, look at how many downloads I've got. Well, that's not really a, an indication of being on the right path because people aren't using the app. Now, on the flip side, if your goal is just to have acquisition, then maybe that is a success metric. But you know, we need to anchor those understandings of are we on the right path against what the business case is. If you're if you're building this to generate revenue and build a business on, then you're you're gonna need people probably trading cash for it, but something of value, right? It may be maybe it's an email list or, or whatever, but I think it depends entirely on what those goals are for the business and the product. So does that answer your question? Yeah. I think I maybe darted around there a little bit. No, very, very interesting, definitely. Because um, it is a challenging one. Actually, yes. I mean, you mentioned there on the marketing and the, the piece, which I see myself as extremely important, getting that product out there. Have you any recommendations, Trevor, in terms of how do you get the application out there, get the people using it, besides pumping a lot of money into marketing and sales? Or what do you yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I here's the, the heuristic that I use for marketing. Marketing is 
Marketing spend and advertising spend is primarily, though not exclusively, but primarily best used when you have good validation that your your product is solving the problem in an yeah. adequate way, right? So, you know, I know people that spend two, three, th- four, five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand dollars a month on marketing and advertising, and their product really isn't in a place where adoption really matters because it's buggy, it's broken, it, it isn't really connecting with its audience. So my opinion is that we use marketing once we get to a place where I feel confident that I have good enough product market fit that if I put, you know, as, as we say, pour gasoline on the fire, that's really going to help my business. It's really going to help my product. There is a counter argument to that. And that is, and I'll leave that with the listeners to decide if this applies to them, is that sometimes marketing, a, a small level of marketing spend can be helpful for awareness of the product. And there are times when I see people put, you know, small numbers, you know, three, four, five hundred dollars a month behind Facebook ads, you behavioral targeting or even retargeting ads if people have hit your website. And that's just to keep people warm. It's just to get your brand in front of people. I think that's a valid, there's a valid argument for that use of marketing. But in most cases, you know, our job as product people, you know, and my job as a product person is to conserve resources and direct them at the most the highest and best use of them. And so in most cases, I prefer to point people in the direction of don't spend money on advertising and marketing until you are fairly confident that you have product market fit and that marketing and ad spend will go a long way. Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you so much. Fantastic advice. Yeah. No, I was going to say one other thing that I... It just picked my interest when, when we were talking about that. There's another side of marketing that gets ignored a lot because it's hard and the ROI is not as easily measurable, but that's organic efforts. And I think that everybody needs to be engaging in that as early as possible. So whether that's blog posts, whether that's, you know, podcasts that are non-monetized, Instagram posts, Twitter, Facebook, generating content that people don't have to pay for goes a long way in terms of SEO, but also has that same impact of like those low level marketing spends that increases brand awareness. When people hit your website, when people hit your app store page or whatever it is, you want them to have an experience of this company's been around for a while and they kind of know what they're talking about. And that can't really be done in person in a digital format, right? So we need to, you know, we need to provide enough content and enough interaction in that sense that people feel confident when they interact with our company via a website or a social page or something like that. So I just wanted to add that Organic efforts, do it early and do it often. That's a great advice. So just getting, finally getting back to you, Trevor, um, what does the future hold? Yeah, so Newberry Consulting is rocking and rolling and, and uh, AppThink is, is really, really close to being ready. AppThink, you know, I think I maybe did it a disservice earlier describing it. So what we're doing there is building a hybrid online learning platform for early, early stage and non-technical founders. What it will do is combine you know, sort of your traditional Udemy style video courses with group teaching and learning and then one-to-one and community-based learning. And all of those will be kind of mashed together in a cohort model to try and maximize the benefits that we can deliver to each of those people, but also be able to do that at scale. So, you know, being able to run 10 to 20 people through the AppThink cohort is a lot more efficient and effective for a lot of our, our target customers than the traditional consulting engagement fees or retainer fees, right? And so that's what that's the next big project for us. And then, you know, currently I think I shared with you we're we're talking with a uh, firm here in Birmingham to uh, 
really help bolster the startup ecosystem in this area. So I'm really, really excited Ooh. about that. So lots of really fun and, and exciting things that are happening right now. Fantastic. So in relation to AppTink, when do you think you So I keep using the pronoun we throughout this because I keep thinking of Dave, my co-founder. Uh, Newberry Consulting is just me, but AppTink, I have a co-founder um, who is a director of product for a... I would not call them a startup the successful company here in Birmingham called Pack Health. And Dave and I are building this thing on, on nights and weekends when we have time. But we are really, really hoping that mid to late February, we have at least what we would call our MVP. So kind of the quick and dirty, but good quality version of AppThink ready to go. So you know, we will be looking for up to 10 people to run through this first cohort. And it will be priced uh, competitively you know, to try and get people in. So you know, if you want to visit uh, AppThink.io, not .com, .io, because .com was a gajillion dollars as they are these days. So we're at thing.io. You can get some more information there. There's a free ebook sign up if you're, you want to kind of get started learning a little bit more about the company and the product. But yeah, we're really hoping that mid to late February, we've got that ready to roll. Excellent, Sharon. And if people would like to learn a bit more about you, how what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah, you can get in touch at, uh, you know, in, in a lot of cases, email is the best way, which is kind of boring, but I live in my email most days. So you can email me at trevor at newberryconsulting.com or trevor at appthink.io. Either of those will work. They all land in the same unified inbox. You can also find uh, me on both of those websites, newberryconsulting.com, appthink.io. And to make it even easier, both of those handles on pretty much every social network, except for Twitter right now, we're getting there. But that's, you know, at Newberry Consulting and at App. That's fantastic, Trevor. Listen, thank you so much for giving us all that advice today. Like, yeah. Pleasure, pleasure to have you on the show. It was a pleasure to be here. I, I hope it was helpful. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Great. Thank you, Trevor.